0: Thanks for downloading Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how breakthroughs here are changing our world today and in the future. In our sister publication, Solve Magazine, we share in-depth articles and highlights of research taking place across the university. Our new edition is out this week. And to celebrate, we'll be catching up with five featured pieces in this special podcast episode. With home energy bills remaining a challenge, we'll be finding out about the technology that's in development to help us stay green, clean, and importantly, affordable. We'll find out how Portsmouth is supporting paleontology in Morocco and a new era of international discovery, and much more. But to start with, what's the link between chronic pain and physical activity? And can exercise help us battle this in later life? Dr. Niels Niederstrasser kicks us off. Niels is a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology here at Portsmouth.
1: As a researcher, you always want to find ways of of helping people, making people's lives better.
0: Intrigued by studies that suggested physical activity could help moderate pain, Niels wanted to break down the all-adult statistics into findings that could be more meaningful for
1: the older population. The prevalence of so how many people suffer from chronic pain increases a lot as we get older, and there's some really interesting statistics. So it's about 50% roughly for those 55 and 75, but it's up to 62% of those 75 and older. It's a large number if you think about it, like every other person or even more so if you're older than 75 and that represents a large chunk of the population and chronic pain is an incredibly debilitating condition that goes along with so many other negative health consequences that it just seems like something we should focus on as much as we can, because it has all this potential to help so many people in so many different ways. So how does a psychologist end up studying something as physical as pain? We tend to think about pain as a biopsychosocial experience. So obviously we need to have an underlying anatomy and physiology that allows us to have sensations that the brain can then interpret as being painful. Acute pain is anything if I I'm particularly bad at DIY so if I try to put a picture on the wall and put a nail I obviously hit myself on the finger and the pain I experience then is acute because it should only last for a short time is very painful in that moment but once the tissue is healed and everything (laughs) the pain dissipates. It can happen, however, that pain persists for an extended period of time. And so what we generally call chronic pain is pain that lasts for at least three months. And that is generally pain that persists, even though the underlying injury that may have caused it has healed up. But you're still experiencing pain. The way it manifests itself in older adults is quite diverse.
0: Pain can have a limiting impact on life. It can also discourage sufferers from enjoying their normal activities, social interactions, and independence.
1: Being in pain is absolutely horrific, and that has a very direct impact on how you're feeling, but also not being able to do the things that you enjoy, not being able to go out, meet friends, not being able to work, having to rely on others helping you, Then there's some obvious social and psychological factors, but also other health factors, because what happens a lot is that people avoid movement a lot. And so they become increasingly sedentary and that has a lot of negative effects down the line in terms of their physiology and that's why in the study as well we have this link with obesity as well because obviously a reduced physical activity leads to your calorie requirement decreasing as well disuse is a big thing so your muscles obviously weaken and you lose muscle mass bone density and those kind of things it's not particularly great for your cardiovascular system either By exploring the suggestion that physical
0: activity helps ease pain, Niels made some interesting findings in the older population.
1: Physical activity is one thing that I think anyone has the capacity of including in their life. So it doesn't have necessarily the side effects that some of the strong pain medication would have. And it is something that doesn't just have a positive effect on pain. It has a positive effect on your mood, has a positive effect on your body as a whole, your physiology. When you look at a lot of the diseases that are very common in the Western societies, you see that a lot of times the risk factors include a lack of physical activity. But it's also something that a lot of people struggle with in terms of they don't know how, they don't know how much, what kind, they're afraid it's going to make things worse. So there's a lot of barriers and and barriers that we need to be aware of, especially when people are older and they start becoming more physically active or even becoming physically active for the first time. We wanted to see if the physical activity and pain relationship holds true for an older sample. Those who did more physical activity were less likely to suffer from pain, whereas those who were sedentary were more likely. So those with high physical activity levels have a lower risk of suffering from chronic pain down the line, which is not the case for those engaging in mild physical activity. So it's again that this physical activity needs to be of sufficient intensity. And the reason this is so interesting is because of the way that the categories are. So. The high physical activity really refers to the heavy manual work or the vigorous leisure activities. That's the interesting bit. So really vigorous leisure activities and more than once a week. By vigorous, we meant things like swimming, digging with a spade, jogging or running, cycling and tennis. Quite intense leisure activities.
0: Although this is another piece of the puzzle in understanding the mind's relationship with pain and the diverse ways it can present, Niels suggests we need to take action now to ensure this advice is passed on to the public for real world change.
1: In the UK, we have activity guidelines and it's a small proportion of older adults that actually engage in the minimum recommended activity levels. So knowing how important physical activity is, we need to find ways of promoting physical activity. Because it's not just going to have an effect on pain, it's going to have a number of hopefully positive effects for people.
0: Another story on how the healthcare sector can use research insights now. Professor Adrian Hopgood's interest in technology machine learning and artificial intelligence often see him having fascinating conversations with strangers and colleagues alike. But when he met with the UK's leading bowel cancer surgeon, Dr. Jim Kahn, a valuable new research project was born. In the case of Jim Kahn,
2: you know, we talked about my interest in artificial intelligence and he explained that he's been working at the trust for many years and he's got fairly comprehensive records of all the patients who've been through surgery. And we just sort of, got to talk about what we could do together to use his
0: expertise and his data with this sort of uh, AI expertise that we have in the university. Artificial intelligence and machine learning may be more familiar terms to us now than they were 10 years ago, but we're still learning to trust that automated programs can do jobs that only the human brain has been capable of previously. As more and more trust is built up in artificial intelligence systems, they give more and more autonomy and more, and more responsibility. Adrian and Jim were keen to understand how AI could enhance the care experiences for patients undergoing bowel cancer surgery.
2: One of the the biggest costs for bowel cancer surgery is the hospital stay. But the good news is that ninety percent of cases are actually cured by surgery, so it's a, it's a good, effective treatment. But yeah, forty thousand euros, and the hospital care is a major part of that. So it's not all down to the sort of the key focus of going in and having your operation. It's all the hospital care, particularly afterwards which is a key part of the cost. So if you have a good indicator of what's going to happen to a particular patient immediately after surgery, you can plan for exactly where they should be, which ward they should be in, and how long to expect them there. One of the fantastic things is that the clinicians themselves are so excited about it, seeing
0: that it can help them do their job better, get better outcomes for patients. But how do you turn raw patient data into a program that can classify risk factors for patients and help hospitals better plan for their care? Adrian explained how they started with a machine learning approach.
2: The approach that we took here was to, first of all, do some data analytics or statistical analysis to see if there are any patterns in there. And that would give us confidence that we would be able to build some sort of predictor. Looking at length of stay, for instance, we were able to sort of look at the sort of analysis you can see in these bar charts to see if there are any clear patterns. So the way we've coded this is that green is good, meaning short length of stay. If you're young, rather than old, fit if there's no complications, if it's robotic surgery, which is a kind of strange expression really because it's still under the control of the surgeon, but the surgeon's manipulating remote surgical instruments and the uh, mortality horizons as well. With that information that there are some patterns in the data, we're then able to build a different range of machine learning-based models. The one that seemed to consistently deliver the best results was the uh, so-called bi-directional LSTM. LSTM is long short-term memory. And all these algorithms are doing is matching patterns. So you present a, a new set of patient variables and it will say, well, that fits into this class of patient who is likely to be readmitted or is likely to have a long
0: spell in hospital or whatever. That's all machine learning does. He makes it sound simple, but Adrian is excited about the possibilities this kind of approach and an increased trust in technology and algorithms can deliver.
2: I've worked in AI for a long time and seen sort of different tools come and go in popularity. So there's a big interest in machine learning, you know, rightly so at the moment, because there's been some big breakthroughs in terms of the techniques that are available, but also the computing power and the large data sets that are available as well. There are sort of well-established techniques for capturing the domain expertise in the sort of so-called knowledge-based artificial intelligence, where you're actually trying to mimic the specialist expertise of let's say a clinician or a lawyer or whatever. One of the things that I'm interested in in this project and indeed in general is using those techniques in a complementary manner so in the future maybe we could capture Jim Kahn's clinical expertise to overlay what comes out of machine learning so it can check that it makes sense or he might know some other information some other factor about this patient which is not necessarily among our variables but some other factor about this patient, which would give him some other indicators as to the uh, likely outcomes for that individual. There are three main things I'd like to do as we move forward. First thing is to get a bigger data set. With more data, we could build a more reliable classifier. For all these operations, there is actually photo and video evidence of the operation itself. So that might be able to give us some useful indicators. But that kind of visual analysis is a step up in difficulty. Using some image recognition on top would be really hard, but potentially quite exciting. And then the third thing is we could enrich whatever's coming out of the machine learning algorithm by some captured clinical
0: specialist knowledge in a so-called knowledge-based system. Adrian hopes that by incorporating clinical knowledge and expertise, rather than just numerical data into AI and machine learning systems, it might be possible to diagnose a condition or propose patient care without a clinician. Of course, nobody's suggesting we replace doctors, but by feeding their expertise into sophisticated systems, we might be able to streamline care, spot issues more easily, and take the strain of in-demand health services in the future. That's uh, the, That the clinician
2: can use and can help that clinician give better quality of advice to the patients. It can help them design a better patient care plan. It can help them to plan their use of resources better. So that's all great. Is added information for the clinician. But at the next step you can envisage some sort of more specific recommendation coming out of the AI system, rather than saying this is some information that can help you build a patient care plan, you could say here's a patient care plan or here's how you might use your
0: resources. From hospitals to the wind swept Moroccan Sahara now. In the last season of Life Solved, Dr. Nizar Ibrahim talked to us about his unearthing of the world's most complete spinosaurus skeleton. For the new issue of Solve magazine, we caught up with him to hear how the work he's doing in Morocco is helping paleontology-rich nations step forward for a new era of discovery in the field. First, he explained why this particular region is so fascinating to him.
3: I was interested in the Sahara just because it's located in essentially paleontology's forgotten continent, Africa. And it's a very big place. It's about the size of the United States. It's a really big desert. In Morocco, I saw this long escarpment that stretches over some 250 kilometers, very close to the Algerian border. So it's almost in Algeria. And that just looked like a promising place in terms of just, you know, the sheer size of the outcrop. Once you start working somewhere... You could really spend a lifetime, you know, digging up fossils there, right? It's a very rich place. Of course, as a paleontologist, you always have these very big kind of deep time perspectives, right? And so you're walking around the Sahara now, and when you're working in these, you know, 100 million year old rocks, you occasionally, you know, just walk around and you find like a giant fish scale or a crocodile scoot, you know, armor plate, or, you know, we find remains of big SUV sized fish. And that's when you really understand this concept of deep time, you know, and you realize this place was a huge river system stretching all the way from Morocco to Egypt. It certainly gives you a sense of deep time.
0: Nizar has been passionate about seeking out the species time forgot since he was a
3: child. I opened the, the pages of a book on dinosaurs and other extinct animals when I was five or six years old. And it was a pretty profound moment In the sense that, you know, I discovered creatures and lost worlds that I didn't even know existed. And I also realized that this slice of time that we care very deeply about, that we call the present, is really just a tiny little fragment.
0: But he's keenly aware that the opportunities to learn that he had growing up in Berlin are not the same for budding paleontologists and explorers in other parts of the world that 's why he's working to address this as he collaborates with partners and future paleontology leaders in Morocco.
3: Scientific narrative in paleontology is very much a western driven narrative it's mostly based on discoveries in places like North America and Europe and also data sets and you know universities and museums in those places we're now seeing Some important contributions from places like China and South America, but it's still very much a Western narrative for the most part. And Africa is, you know, our planet's second largest landmass and it's really lagging behind. So one of the things I'm trying to do is really help establish research collections in Africa, highlighting Africa's incredible paleontological heritage. And really inspiring and also training the next generation of guardians for this ancient heritage, right? So young African students and researchers. And it's a lot of hard work. I think some people that are interested in the topic of decolonization and so on don't really know what that involves because it's not that simple. You know, it's it's a bit like when people say, oh, you know, repatriation, you just return a bunch of things from a museum. It's not that simple. You know, you're doing this in places where you often have deeply entrenched corruption, So you can't repatriate things to a place where they will just end up in the black market. Corruption is a big issue. Infrastructure, you know, you can't, you need good museum and collections infrastructure. You need to have the right people in the right places, right? You need to have scientists and curators with the necessary expertise and so on. So it's really a lot of hard work. It's not just something that you can solve in, you know, Twitter debates and rants. And so that's what we're trying to do. It's, you know, really... I recently secured some funds for the University of Casablanca, where many of my fossils are housed right and so we're going to use those to buy some of the infrastructure we need, like collections cabinets and humidity and temperature controls and and those kinds of things right so it's really essentially starting from scratch but that's a you know that's become a really important part of my work and it's just a reminder that this is, this is not just about science, it's also about capacity building and inspiring young people in that part of the world to pursue careers in science and exploration.
0: We've had plenty of reasons to examine dominant narratives about our world and how we relate as cultures in the last few years. The recent war in Ukraine has caused Dr. Patricia Shemai, Principal lecturer in international relations to talk with her students about how public opinion is playing an ever important role in the political relations of nations.
4: The Ukraine crisis to me is uh, fascinating and also very, very sad because we're seeing traditional security threats, traditional deterrence, concerns about the proliferation and use of nuclear and chemical weapons. Thank goodness we haven't had discussion about biological but nuclear and and chemical weapons. But we're also seeing that within a modern globalised context. So we're seeing with Ukraine how important social media is and how important the internet is. And Ukraine is brilliantly using that as a tool to try to address the imbalance in forces, the strategic imbalance between Ukraine and Russia. So we're seeing that Ukraine has a superb Social media, I, I, don't, I think it belittles it when you say it's a social media campaign, but they've raised awareness of what's happening within Ukraine by using social media. But they've also used it as a strategic tool against Russia. So we see the images of what's going on within different parts of Ukraine. But also I think about the satellite technology and the advances that we have in instant forms of communication and surveillance. So, for example, drone technology Drone technology has been used as a way to demonstrate what's happened in various cities within Mariupol, various cities within Ukraine, but also it's been used as a strategic tool to identify vulnerabilities and weaknesses amongst Russian forces.
0: And instead of relying solely on international bodies to respond to crises, people are taking grassroots action too.
4: NATO could have the option of actually intervening in Ukraine, which is taken off the table, but The economic sanctions and the pressures that we're seeing applied to Russia are again um, considered a strategic tool because of our reliance on social media and our generalized interconnectedness as a result of globalization. So I think that that's being seen as a new type of approach. And I think what's also fascinating from Ukraine is actually the sort of grassroots public response, the individual response, the outpouring of support for people who are escaping Ukraine, Ukrainian refugees, is again amazing. But also, I think the individual embargoes and blocking of Russia that people have done, just locally around here. I mean, I live in a quiet little town in the south of England, it's a, traditionally a military town is just near Portsmouth. The number of Ukrainian flags I see flying outside people's houses in support and solidarity, again, is sort of something that that outpouring of support has an impact on the leadership within individual countries and then in the international response. That's how I see the modern security environment, this combination of domestic and old-fashioned strategic. So states and geostrategic interests are of concern, but also you have domestic vulnerabilities and you have new types of domestic tools. It's reigniting our understanding of human vulnerability, I think. I definitely think it has stirred up a greater awareness of world affairs and definitely stirred up this sort of questioning of, well, if we see that it's not acceptable in Ukraine, why did we think it was acceptable in Syria? Why did we think it was acceptable in Afghanistan?
0: Patricia thinks that increased public engagement with international political conversation could also offer a more hopeful future, one where nations are discouraged from using threat or force in the pursuit of power.
4: I think within the nuclear world, there has to be a conversation about how you reinforce nuclear norms, because Russia has succeeded so far because it's threatened the world as a result of its nuclear capability. And it's sort of held the world to hostage slightly by that. And I think there has to be a questioning because the potential for other states to do that, if Russia can do that, then can other states do that? I'm very hopeful that it propels non-proliferation efforts and discussions and that there is a greater questioning about how we can prevent another scenario like this occurring. I still think that it's also quite a period of hope in that because of social media and because of a greater awareness of what's going on in the world, we are seeing more of a sort of international mobilisation and more of a people response that we've never seen before. And I'm hopeful that we see that in Russia, as well as in within Russia itself. But because of that, Sort of people response, it makes it much harder for Russia to dominate and maintain its dominance. Um, if it were to take Ukraine, if it were to maintain the war, it needs to keep justifying that. I think it's much harder today than it would have been in the 1950s.
0: In our final story for this episode, we look at how another global concern is being addressed with cutting edge research and technology. The climate crisis has caused industries and individuals alike to take action on reducing their carbon footprint to help reach net-zero goals, but seemingly counter to that is the need for affordable energy. During the current energy crisis, however, the cost of renewable energy has become much more competitive compared to traditional sources such as gas, and some are weighing up the pros and cons of installing clean energy tech in their homes versus soaring energy bills this winter. For lower income households, this is not even an option. So local councils are taking action to help introduce tech that keeps homes green and warm at a better price. Dr. Yovana Radulovic, head of the School of Mechanical and Design Engineering, told us more.
5: My research primarily focuses on thermodynamic assessment of different energy systems and heat pumps and any type of energy storage, including domestic thermal storage would be a part of that. I think as a global society, it took us a long time to really embark on a journey where we are more heavily investing into different renewable energy systems. But we are all fully aware, especially in the UK, that weather can be very temperamental. And that means that renewable energy is available only when certain climate conditions allow us to harness it. So renewables go hand-in-hand with different energy storage technologies, and everybody's always talking about batteries because we've known and used batteries for centuries. But going forward, we need to diversify energy storage solutions.
0: Amongst many projects, Jovan has been exploring different materials which can collect and store heat for use with different renewable technologies in our homes, businesses and buildings.
5: Part of my research looks into use of different materials to collect and store what we refer to as the low-grade heat. So such heat can be used for a number of industrial processes, but something the general public can relate to is that that heat could be used to heat our homes or perhaps provide hot water for the shower. Historically, in the UK, gas was a cheaper alternative. That's why even consideration of any other heating systems was not, how can I put this diplomatically, seriously considered by homeowners, especially those on limited income. Now, the government is seriously talking about reaching very ambitious net zero targets in the Mm coming years. And in the UK, we've had a massive increase in gas and electricity prices. Some gas and electric suppliers are saying that one in eight of their customers won't be able to afford those costs.
0: The problem is every building is unique. So finding the right renewable heating option and good storage is a very bespoke puzzle for engineers to work out.
5: It is extremely unlikely that we will find a property for which both the heat pump and the electric boiler are equally good. In the context of the UK, we were just looking at the heat pumps that the government was going to subsidize. Electric boiler is designed to be an electric carbon emission-free alternative to conventional gas boilers. Now electric boiler is emission-free only if electricity comes from green sources. If we remove that piece of the puzzle and the face value is that you can turn the electric boiler on when you need that heat and hot water, it is not as easy to do that for, with a heat pump. The heat pump is designed to operate continuously. The heat pump is a lot more expensive than an electric boiler. But longer term, and if we are moving towards net zero, heat pumps are suitable for homes of certain sizes. For example, for a newly built house, a heat pump can be considered as a part of the design and construction phase, so it can be easily incorporated in the house design. It is not always possible to retrofit a heat pump into, say, a family home, because the size may be too large, maybe there is no space to fit the heat pump inside and outside. Heat pumps can be perceived as noisy sometimes. Sometimes heat pumps require homeowners to change the type of radiators they're using, maybe do some plumbing work, you know, pipes, changes, stuff like that. So there could be a lot of problems and hidden costs.
0: What's more, the lowest income households are caught between a rock and a hard place, lacking the funds for new technology and facing soaring gas bills. That's where councils are calling on engineers like Giovanna for help.
5: Here in the South, the university works very closely with Portsmouth City Council. Another project that one is about solar energy that I was involved in is in collaboration with Brighton City Council so that whole strip of the of the south coast of England their constituents are struggling and in order to avoid that energy poverty they need to look into different ways of helping them installing solar panels on the roof is a no brainer because now panels are so cheap that council can easily afford them And going forward, they want to know if investment in the electric boilers would be a wise one.
0: Solutions are already in development to bring more affordable options forward in the future. What's more, Jovan has been collaborating with different companies to develop a thermal storage system that can help different systems store energy too.
5: That compressor that I worked on, that is real novelty. That is, scientific research applied to a new world and that compressor can be used in a number of systems, say, in, in a new type of heat pump. There are billions of heat pumps currently operating across the globe. That old stock needs to be changed.
0: Thanks for listening to this special episode of Life Solved. In concerning times, it's a comfort to know that researchers and industry around the world are thinking and collaborating behind the scenes to bring forward solutions and ideas that can make a better future. If you'd like to stay across more exciting stories from the University of Portsmouth, you can find Solve magazine online now at port.ac.uk slash solve. We'll be back next Thursday.
4: See you then.